Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. This podcast is supported by the kind and generous members of the Boyarduma. If you want to join them to get members-only episodes, early access to general release episodes, ad-free content and written transcripts, for the price of a cup of coffee a month, then you can by subscribing to the Boyarduma via Patreon, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And as always, check the episode notes for details. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the history of Russia. As usual, I'm Damon and this is episode 70, State of Empire, State of Mind. Thanks for listening in. So last time out we covered young Sophie's trip to Russia, her meetings with the Empress Elizabeth and her future husband, the heir to the Russian throne, Peter Fyodorovich, and the ongoing Prussian and French intrigues against Bestuzhev. We also took a look at Frederick the Great's attempt to take Bohemia, which started positively, but ended with the Austrian and Saxon armies chasing the Prussian army back to where it had started, in Silesia. And all of that had brought us to the year 1744. This week we'll be taking a step back from the goings-on at the Russian court and the War of the Austrian Succession, and instead we'll be covering two broader themes – the overall state of the Russian Empire, and the overall state of Elizabeth's mind. Hmm, fair enough, Damon, but why? Why interrupt the chronological narrative now, just when it's getting really interesting? Oh, thanks. Well, for two reasons, really. Firstly, I think it's important to look at what else was going on in Russia, away from the court intrigue and war. And then secondly, I think it will be worthwhile to try to get to grips with Elizabeth's aims and ambitions. Because as things stand, and I don't know about you, I'm just a little bit confused by her overall approach and her inconsistent state of mind. 
So, in a nutshell then, this week we'll be covering what Russia was like and what Elizabeth was thinking in 1744. Okay, all set? Marvellous. So let's do some history of Russia. So far, we've tracked what we now call Russia through several different entities or guises, from Varangian settlements to the Kievan Rus, the Mongol Empire stroke Golden Horde, through to Vladimir, Novgorod and Moscow, and finally Muscovy, Russia and the Russian Empire. And we've observed a number of different external influences upon those various Eastern Slavic-centric states. Viking, Byzantine, Mongol stroke Tatar, Turkish, Central stroke Eastern European, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth in particular, and Sweden, and finally Western European, and in the main, German, British, Italian, and French. So here's the question. Well, questions actually. With all of those ingredients and all of that history, why in 1744 is Russia, in general, considered to be a European empire? And is that view actually true? Well, and stating the obvious, geographically, a large chunk of the empire was, and still is, in Europe. The Russian Slavs were, and are, predominantly a Christian European people, speaking an Indo-European language. Russia was part of the continent-wide diplomatic order, and its system of government was pretty similar to those that were in place in most of the other European states. A rich elite called the shots, and the poor doffed their caps and did as they were told. They wore European-style clothing. Well, certainly those at the top did. And if you look at the portraits from the time, it would be hard to tell the difference between a Russian prince, a French count, an Austrian duke, or a British lord. The Russian army used European weapons and European tactics, and commanders, and the Russian army sailed in European-style ships. From Peter the Great's time onwards, steps had been taken in line with European practices to start to improve Russia's standing within the fields of industry, education and science, and many European experts had been invited to come and work and live in Russia. But look closer, or perhaps take a look from a different angle, or from a different perspective, and the view becomes less clear and less mainstream European. Since the time of Ivan the Awesome, or Terrible, in the 16th century, Russia had been expanding eastwards at a rate of knots, so that now in 1744, most of Russia's territory was located east of the Urals, in Siberia and the Far East, and later in the 18th century, its territorial holdings would also, for a while, include Alaska. Whilst its system of government looked to all intents and purposes European, it was in fact one of the continent's last true remaining autocracies. The Tsar or the Empress could do pretty much what they wanted, when they wanted, with no real system of checks or balances. The real wealth of the country was in the hands of a tiny elite. There was a minuscule middle class, with the remainder, some 85-90% to 90 of the population, being made up of the agricultural poor, and around 60% of that total were classed as feudal serfs, a condition that in 1744 
only prevailed in Russia and a handful of other Central and Eastern European countries. Whereas in Western Europe there was a growing middle class. Wealth was more evenly spread and feudalism, which had begun to lapse after the Black Death in the mid-1300s, was basically non-existent. The major European powers had experienced and lived through the Age of Discovery and the Scientific Revolution, and were now doing the same with the Age of Enlightenment, whereas Russia had either been bypassed or had merely dipped its toes into the water. So, after all that, was Russia fundamentally different, or just 50 to 100 years behind the European mainstream? Well, here's my take for what it's worth. Russia was in 1744, and probably still is, culturally and politically unique. The situation assisted, no doubt, by the Mongol invasion, an almost two centuries long occupation, plus the influence of the Byzantine Empire upon both Russian church and state. Peter the Great had recognised from an early age that Russia was both adrift and distinct, and had used his personality and energy to, in his opinion, drag his country into the 18th century. But all that had done was to leave Russia with a semblance or a resemblance of Europeanness. I'm not sure if that's a word, but it will do. But nevertheless, a semblance or a resemblance that remains to this day. Then in the 20 years between Peter's death and 1744, the subsequent rulers of Russia, Catherine I, Peter II, Menshikov and the two Annas, hadn't really known how to take things forward with confidence. The question was or is, would or could Elizabeth be any different? Would she be able to redefine her country? Did she know how? Did she really need to or want to? Well, let's take a look and see. Since her birth in 1709 and up to her accession in late 1741, Elizabeth Petrovna had never been a central character. Important, yes, and clever, with a glint in her eye, but strictly a member of the supporting cast. And that was partly due to the fact that she was a woman, and partly due to the fact that she had been born prior to the official public marriage between her mother and father. And as a member of the cast, she watched as others took the limelight as she was passed over, even resorting to, at one point, the I-wouldn't-have-been-ready explanation or excuse when Anna Ivanovna got the top job. But during those 15 years in the background, she'd smiled a lot, she'd listened, she'd nodded and agreed, and she'd survived, whilst at the same time she slowly and carefully built a support network so that if and when the time came, she would be ready. And as we know, in December 1741, when Elizabeth was 31, that moment had arrived, and with her father's prayer Brezhenskoye guards and a few loyal followers, she successfully seized power via a coup d'etat. Now everything would change. Now she would be the star of her own show. So, what kind of empress would she be, and what was first and foremost on her mind. So, what kind of empress would she be, and what was first and foremost on her mind? 
Well, we know that she was popular and by all accounts beautiful and attractive, plus she'd had many lovers, but in 1744 she was still single and showed no inclination to marry, let alone have children of her own. And yet, intriguingly, we don't fully understand why. She had almost been married to Johanna's brother, Charles Augustus, but he'd died of smallpox back in 1727, just days before the planned wedding. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And then during Anna Ivanovna's reign, a marriage for Elizabeth as a direct descendant of Peter the Great would have been out of the question. There was no way that Anna, who was from the Miloslavsky side of the Romanov family, would let a Narishkin marry and produce a potential heir, particularly when for most of her reign she didn't have one herself. Elizabeth could be frivolous, flirtatious and the life and soul of the party, but she was also deeply religious, and so maybe, having been engaged once before, she had made a vow never to marry again. Or was there another, simpler reason? For a long time now, Elizabeth had at least been mistress of her own house, and perhaps she just wanted to keep it that way, because marriage would have inevitably meant losing her freedom and independence. Far better and less complicated to live with her lover, the so-called Emperor of the Night, the quiet and unassuming Alexei Razumovsky by her side. It's also strange that, having had numerous lovers over the years, there wasn't a single report of either a child or a pregnancy. There were wild rumours of a secret brood of children being kept isolated in a palace somewhere, but I'm pretty sure that those stories can be discounted. So, was it a case then of not wanting children, or of not being able to have any? Well, we don't know the real reasons behind any of this, and I'm not going to endlessly speculate. But, having seized power, Elizabeth meant to keep it, and so if there was to be no husband and no children, then priority number one was to get young Peter over to Russia and set him up under her control as a designated heir, whilst at the same time making sure that the Brunswicks and young Ivan were kept out of the picture. There were two further items of equal importance. First off, like many who had seized power by force, she was absolutely petrified that someday somebody else would do the same to her. Elizabeth's solution to this perceived threat was to a. keep a close personal eye and a firm grip on the nobility, particularly those who were close to the throne, 
B, keep Ushakov and his secret police busy watching and listening to everyone else. And C, keep on the move and never settle into a recognised routine. Night times were the worst, as this was usually when prospective plotters struck. Well, in her experience they did, and so Elizabeth constantly changed her sleeping arrangements, sometimes announcing at the last minute that she was moving to a different palace or getting the builders and decorators in to reshape an entire suite of rooms. And so subsequently, she developed into something of a paranoid insomniac who was suspicious of everyone, no matter how safe she appeared to be. And then secondly, the Empress was determined as much as she could to keep Russia out of any unnecessary wars and conflicts. And again, this was for a number of reasons. One, you could never quite tell how effective the Russian army was going to be. Two, the inevitable human impact. And three, and perhaps the most important, the financial costs involved. Because in 1741, Russia's economy was in a parlous state. It's reckoned that there was a 5 million ruble hole in the state's finances, which, upon further investigation, was discovered to be down to that old chestnut, the non-collection of due taxes. And so, as an immediate step to stem the bleeding, civil servant and army pay was reduced, never a popular move, and then the taxation system was amended to bring a further 1.5 million people into the loop. And it was mainly the lack of money that explains Elizabeth's reluctance to get further involved in the murk of the War of the Austrian Succession. Up until 1744, Russia's only participation had been with the War of the Hats against Sweden, and even that had been a conflict which Elizabeth had inherited. Now, she hadn't simply stood up and proclaimed to the Austrians the French and the Prussians, etc. I can't get involved. My army is unpredictable. I haven't got any money. And anyway, the human cost would be too great. Of course not. But what she did instead was call on two subtler weapons, prevarication and obfuscation. The prevarication bit was easy and simply involved Elizabeth taking as long as she possibly could to make any kind of decision, whilst she hoped and prayed for something else to turn up which would make the original issue go away. Obfuscation, or the deliberate obscuring of events, involved a delicate balancing act, which no one, not even her closest advisers, completely understood. Was she anti-French, and or anti-Prussian, or pro-Austrian? Who really knew? Did she even know herself? So in retrospect then, in the first few years of her reign, Elizabeth's mindset was underpinned by fear and insecurity, and it's that frame of mind that had driven her initial set of actions and policies. But it wasn't all fear, insecurity, prevarication and obfuscation. There were three other areas which any ruler worth his or her salt needed to address. The overall themes for the reign, domestic policy, and then last but by no means least, putting on a show. So in Elizabeth's mind, the key themes were going to be a continuation of her father's reforms and pro-Western approach, and her own version of the Enlightenment, but all would have a more Russian flavour. 
We'll be checking in on her progress with these as her reign progresses, and again at the end. However, the Empress had signified her intentions via a couple of changes made prior to 1744. The effective abolition of the death penalty and the restoration of the Senate. So we need to bear in mind here that though her intention was not to use capital punishment, all kinds of barbaric punishments, noutings, brandings, hard labour in Siberia, and as we've already witnessed, the removal of vocal body parts, continued unabated. Still, most countries in Europe did the same, and none of them had, as of yet, got rid of the death penalty. The Russian Senate effectively replaced Anna Ivanovna's cabinet system of government and was meant to a. signify a return to the good old days of Peter the Great and b. introduce a more consensual form of policy and decision-making, particularly in the field of domestic affairs. The only problems were that Elizabeth, if you could get her to stop prevaricating, held effective power of veto. Plus, she only really dealt with those at the top of the tree, Bastuzhev, Lestok, Vorontsov, the Razumovskis, and three new kids on the block, the Shuvalovs, who we'll get to meet soon. Having said all of that, later in Elizabeth's reign, there would be some Senate-driven fundamental and far-reaching educational reforms, which would benefit every social class in Russia, except one, of course, the serfs. Like all of her predecessors, Elizabeth either privately knew the system of serfdom was wrong, or, and this is more likely, she didn't really spend too much time thinking about it. Publicly, however, she knew that controlling and maintaining the system kept the nobility happy, and so during her reign there was very little in the way of enlightened thinking that, impact, that impacted the serfs. It was made illegal to punish uh, serfs via the death penalty or use of the knout, but there was hardly any checking to see if these laws were obeyed, and the vast majority of landowners continued to treat their serfs as and how they wanted. The one thing that Elizabeth really enjoyed and excelled at was anything that involved getting her glad rags on and putting on a show. She loved music, danced well, plus she got to order everyone else around particularly when it came to who could wear what, particularly when she decided to hold one of her notorious metamorphosis balls, where all of the court ladies dressed as men and vice versa. Of course, everyone else hated them, especially the men, but then that was sort of the whole point. So we've built up a picture of the Empress Elizabeth's character and mindset, a character and mindset best depicted, I think, by the Russian historian Vasily Kluchevsky, who described her somewhat patronisingly, but I think it really hits the mark, as a clever and kind but disordered and willful madam. Okay, that's where we'll end things today. Next time, we'll be back on the familiar ground of the chronological narrative. So until then, dear listeners, and of course patrons, chins up, heads down, and stay as safe as you possibly can. <laughs>